Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website at carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that Apple, Spotify, Acast. Today we're recording our 50th podcast, so it's a special landmark in the whole process of doing these podcasts. So I am especially delighted to have as my guest today, Helen Martin, the Charities Regulator. And we're going to be talking about her role as a regulator, but also about the evolving charity landscape and her vision for the sector. So you're very, very welcome. Helen, you, you might start by introducing yourself and just maybe give us a sense of your career journey to date. Thanks, Dermot. I'm delighted to be here now and, and talking to you today in relation to this. And I listen to these podcasts myself, so it's great to have an opportunity to be talking to you on one. In terms of my own career to date, where I started out actually is I ended up in the kind of regulatory affairs side of things and in the area of regulation almost by accident. I had a law degree and law was where I was very much focused and I ended up working for a telecommunications company. So I went on to spend around 10 years in the telecommunications sector specialising in regulatory affairs and after that I joined the civil service and I was drafting legislation. And that's where I really got that sense of the public sector and serving the public and making sure that you can you can make a difference in that sense in terms of the work that you do. So when I got an opportunity to join the Charities Regulator in 2017, it kind of brought those two things together, which was my interest in regulation, but also on the public service side of things as well. So I joined initially as Director of Regulation in 2017, and then in 2019, I got the role of Chief Executive Officer of the Charities Regulator. So it's It's been pretty hectic since then. I would say outside my role as a regulator, though, I'm very much involved in, you know, the local community. I'm aware of all the great work that goes on there, not just by charities, but also other groups that rely on volunteers, you know, particularly sporting groups, you know, for children, trying to get them involved in activities. So that's given me a really good sense of, I suppose, both sides, you know, regulation, but also and being a regulator, but also as well being regulated. And I would have had that in my earlier career. For those who may not be as familiar, you know, with the Office of the Charity Regulator. What are the core things that you do as Charity Regulator? And there is, and there is an Office of the Charity Regulator, so there's quite a quite a big scope of things you, you, you have to deal with. There is, there is. The, the Charities Regulatory Authority is a statutorily independent body. And what's key about that is that it has a board. So as Chief Executive, I'm answerable to the board in, in the same way as, as you are, in the same way as all the other CEOs and, and managing directors out there of charities are. And that board, as I said, is independent in its functions and that's provided for under the Charities Act. And the core functions of the regulator, the first thing is really we're tasked with increasing trust and confidence in the sector because the legislature, people who made this legislation, they identified that this was something that was incredibly important. This important sector and trust and confidence in it is incredibly important. So from a practical perspective, what does that entail? Well, we register charities. We also ensure the charities comply with, with charity law but also not just charities, others. You know, there are others out there who may be operating and who may find themselves in the realm of charities regulation, maybe because they're holding
holding themselves out as a charity and they're not registered or they're holding themselves out as a charity and they're not a charity. And it's very much part of our role that we protect that status really of people being charities, of groups being charities and make sure that that isn't impacted by other organisations that aren't. Another part of our role that maybe a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with, but it does take up a significant amount of our resources, is on what we call the charity services side. So this is where we took over functions um, under the older Charities Act. So Charities Law doesn't begin and end with the 2009 Act. There are older acts as well. And under those acts, we have certain obligations and certain powers. And one of those that often comes up would be in relation to charity property. So for some charities, not all, for some charities, they may not have the power to deal with how they want to deal with their charity property and they may need the authorisation of the charities regulator. That would be a very small number of charities generally but nevertheless the work as you can imagine is very very technical. It's legal work. We have a full-time lawyer involved and overseeing that work and we have a committee, our board has a committee that recommends and scrutinises those cases and then makes recommendations to the board. So that's a large part of our work as well. I would say bringing it back to the regulation of charities, really how we see our role is ensuring that we support charities so that they can be well run so that they have all the tools available to them and we do that by you know publishing guidance by publishing template documents and we have a contact center where anybody who's looking to register as a charity or maybe people who have questions about their own registration and can contact that that center and talk to staff or can email them and uh, we also have an online portal and people can communicate with us through that because when you're registered as you know it doesn't just end at that you know there's an annual report that all charities are, are required legally to submit every year but also there are things that come up on a day-to-day basis that a charity may need to apply to the regulator for and things like that would be if a charity is planning on changing its name really really important that they contact the charity's regulator first because if you change your name and you haven't had consent to change your name and that's in addition to being a criminal offence it um, it also means you you can come off the register for having done that and I, I think most charities would agree that's the last thing that they want to happen particularly inadvertently but it is it is an important I think somebody had described it as trivial recently and I was really surprised at that because I said well actually if you've got charity A and they've had a name and it's familiar to their donors and their funders and they've been using it for 30, 40 years it would be completely unfair if another entity came along another charity just changed their name to that name and, and took away from their goodwill but also it would be very confusing for the public as well you know so it's coming up to about the 10th year anniversary of when the regulator the office of the regulator was set up because it was 2009 act but it was 2014 since things sort of got commenced in, under the act what has been the major shifts in focus that has happened over those years because the early days was getting up and running but you're now I'm sort of coming to sort of like a, a mature organization yeah I think when when we first as you said we're, we've been in existence now for nearly nine years and our primary f- focus has remained the same so that's you know working with the sector and with the public to increase public trust and confidence in charities and um, what's changed is the activities that we're engaging in and the kind of things where we have to focus now so what we've done over the last few years is obviously we've established um, a register of charities we have a number of initiatives out there to encourage people to check that register so it's really important that charities keep 
keep their details up to date on that. In addition to that, we've also engaged in um, a lot of compliance activities over the years, and um, more so, I would say, in the background with charities. You know, a lot of that work that goes on isn't necessarily, you know, seen out there in the public. But if you look at our compliance reports each year, you'll see there's a lot of work that's going um, on in the background. A big thing for us was establishing the systems that we could use. So our online portal, our website, establishing all that guidance, the kind of core guidance for the sector. Um, in addition to that, for me, a big part of, of my role over the last few years has been, you know, establishing a stable organisational structure. So ensuring that we have the right resources in the right places across the organisation. And that has taken quite a while to put in place because of all the different things that we've all been encountering over the last few years. But certainly I would say since June 2022, we've been very, very lucky in terms of the staff resources that we've been able to attract, particularly over the last 12 uh, 12 months. And that's had a huge impact on our ability to register charities, to ensure that charities are complying, but also getting out there and making sure that our materials are understood by the people who are intended to benefit from them, like charities. Are they easy to read? Are we using enough checklists? I know I love checklists. Do we have enough of them? And these are all things that we can now focus on because we have those core things in place. So with those foundations in place, I'd say where our focus now is shifting is on promoting compliance with obligations. So a big part of that would be your annual reporting, trying to get people to complete the classification form. It only takes a couple of minutes, but that's going to be really important for research and analysis of the sector. And it's something that I encourage everybody to do if they haven't done it already. And also we're hoping it's a way the charities will be able to identify others who are working in a similar space to them and also that funders people who are out there looking to fund you know philanthropic organizations if they're out there looking to fund they'll be able to identify people uh, and entities operating in particular spaces more easily another thing is drawing on our own regulatory experience to identify where we see areas for improvement and that's not just with regard to the sector that's also in relation to us as an organization so where could we do things better and that you know we've identified the communications area planning English we we want to focus more on that and make sure that we have the right guidance for people and that it's continually reviewed also legislative changes you know we've been looking for a charities amendment act for a number of years that's something that we're really looking for and we hope will come into play and then the final thing really is promoting that idea of informed giving by the public and that idea that if you're going to give your time your money to a charity that you do your due diligence you you look into that charity and the best place to look or at least to start looking is on the register and also charity's own websites see what you can learn about the charity and we're hoping that that in turn will also drive what we know the public wants we saw through our surveys which is greater transparency around activities you know how are charities spending the money and the finances more generally of charities so that's really where we're at at the moment and part of that is our click check give campaign that we had you know checkacharity.ie very easy website and that was something that we came up with to try and drive the public towards a source of information on charities that they can trust. So there's been quite a lot of change in terms of scale of operations also the landscape of charities has changed dramatically over the last 10 years and being involved in it myself I've seen it's a very very different place than it was 10-15 years ago what has been the sort of the most significant changes you've seen in the charity landscape? I think certainly since I joined probably the biggest change for me is seeing the extent to which the sector is now embracing the requirement for 
standards of governance for good governance and that we had the Charities Governance Code as you know it was launched in 2018 and certainly it's all that charities you know talk about when I'm talking to them it's always about what they're doing on governance I think that's a massive thing the fact that people speak about governance and actually understand what it means which at its core is that you're run well and how important that is. I think the other thing that's changed a lot is the recognition by charities that the public expects a greater level of transparency and that they are accountable to everybody who funds them, but not just everybody who funds them, to the beneficiaries, to regulators. And I think that's certainly something that we've seen over the years since I joined the charities regulator. I think the other final thing I would say is one of the big changes is a greater level of scrutiny of charities. And I, I think it's not just charities, it's a greater scrutiny of everybody as a result of, of social media and the way that news travels nowadays. And I think that's certainly, I would think, has encouraged that greater focus around governance and organisations realising that things that may, you know, may have been OK in the past are, are not actually OK when you see them dragged out and reported, you know, in the front of a newspaper, which is always the test we say to people you know when you're making a decision how would you think and how would you feel about it if you saw it on the front page of a newspaper well, absolutely I, I, those would mirror a lot of things I have seen and I was just looking back recently in our own stats in, in training back in 2015 and there's night and day compared to the range the depth of training that we provide and the numbers of people we're providing. And I think that is, as you say, governance is much more centre stage. People understand the need for good governance and the obligations of good governance, but also that the whole thing, the transparency, because prior to the register, it was nowhere really you could check whether this was a charity or to get information of who's involved in the charity, what they do. So that basic sort of public accessible list of charities is vital for the well-being of the sector. The other thing that has happened in, in, in you know, because I remember when the, the act was commenced and you, you started building the register and around, there was around 6,000 charities roughly around that time once you set up the register, but it's nearly at 12,000 now. What do, you, what do you think is why there has been that sort of growth? Is it that more people need, see the need to be registered? Or I think myself, Jeremy, it's that we didn't understand the size of the charity sector back then because not all charities had CHY numbers. That would be the charitable tax exemption number. So I'm conscious that people do think, wow, it's really exploded. But I think what you have is just we understand who's out there now, uh, you know, a, a lot more than we did previously. For example, you know, a lot of schools wouldn't have had a CHY number, they wouldn't have had a charitable tax exemption, so they wouldn't have been considered as charities at the time, whereas now we know, well, schools are covered and they are charities. And there's probably lots of other local and smaller groups that, again, are charities, were always charities, but they didn't have a CHY number, so as a result, they weren't visible. I think that's the thing, there's greater visibility. And really what we're looking at every year is adding charities in the hundreds as opposed to the thousands. And I, I think that's probably the change, it's probably around what, how we understand what is and isn't a, a charity. I think also I think we're, we're getting to a plateau stage. I saw your latest stats where, you know, the, the amount that ceased to be charity almost matched the number of new charities that were registered. So I think we are getting that. I also get from people that are too many charities, but I said, well, what, what, what basis do you make that statement? What is too many? And looking internationally, we're, we wouldn't have, you know, an excess number of charities. If you look at England and Wales or Scotland or even Northern Ireland would have a higher portion of charities per head of population so and and the other thing I talk with people is the scale most of them are very very small organizations serving a particular um, niche area or a a local area community so they are volunteer driven in in a lot of cases or maybe one or two staff Um, for me again one of the big changes has been the, the 
the governance code and the requirement of the governance code, and now you are having conversations about what's what's good governance and what the requirements of of, of the code. I see it as a game changer for the sector. It, 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 they, they, I think it has been shifting the conversation and the behaviours and an awful lot of charities. Where are we in terms of compliance? Because it was, you mentioned it was launched in 2018. People had a leading time before it was a requirement. Now it is a requirement to do. You need to be compliant with the code. What's your, what's your take on the level of compliance uh, with the code in, in the sector? I think when we talk about the governance code, and while traditionally we've always talked about compliance and you've got things like the compliance record form, it's really, for me, it's more about the level of engagement because the truth of the matter is, you know, we can't assess the compliance with the charities governance code of 11,500 charities. So what we've done is we've sampled groups. We do that every year and we've looked to engage with them on things like, well, you know, your charity's uh, compliance form. But it's more so to see how they engaged with the code and how they filled it out as opposed to actually scrutinising everything that's in it. And what we've been heartened to see is actually that the standard of that is very high, which indicates that there is a good level of engagement with it. You know, I think, you know, we looked at it and we've seen, you know, 70% of those who were saying that they had declared full compliance when we had engaged with them. Their compliance record form was completed to a very high standard, but also they were well able to talk about what was in it with the staff that were talking to them about it. I think, though, that what we'll have to do in future to really try and get to grips with the things that people are finding difficult is to look at the way that we're monitoring it ourselves and see are there particular things based on our compliance work that we can see charities typically grapple with or some charities might struggle with and maybe use that as a basis for our interactions then with the sample. In that sampling, have particular areas come up to light so far in terms of that are more difficult than others are? Yeah, we published a report on a very short kind of update for the sector on that earlier this year, and it's available on our website. And what we had done is we were trying to capture for everybody, look, what were the issues that we had come across? The kinds of things were quite specific, was things like board terms, you know, making sure that the good practice recommendation, which we have, which was nine years, that that, you know, that someone doesn't sit longer than that, that that's adhered to. But at the end of the day, that is best practice as opposed to a very strict requirement. So there can be lots of issues there as to why, you know, a charity doesn't achieve that. And as long as they're having the discussion and as long as they're recording it, our view is, well, then you're in compliance with that because it's a complier or explain model of compliance that we have in relation to the code. The other area is on things like risk management. People struggle with that area. You know, how do we identify our risks as a charity? And someone put it to me recently, well, really, you know, it's about asking yourself, what are the things as a charity trustee, as a person who's sitting on the board of a charity, what are the things that keep you awake at night when you think about that charity? And they're your risks. That's that's what what risk management is at, at its core. It's identifying those and seeing what you can do to reduce the likely impact of those on your organisation. And all charities have risks. Another area that we've come across and we would come across a bit in terms of our compliance work would be around that whole area of conflicts and, and conflicts of interest. And every charity knows they're required to have a conflicts of interest policy. But the truth is, you know, to what extent are you actually, you know, living that, you know, and, and, and to what extent are you reflecting that in your board? It's very easy to do it, you know, in advance of any board meeting. People get their agenda. They know what's going to be discussed and they let you know whether a conflict arises or not. And then they don't participate in, in that part and it's noted and sometimes people struggle with kind of understanding the basics of that just on that and, and I, I, I do refer people at the, you, you've issued an excellent guidance on conflict of interest yeah. and, and it gives good examples because I think I would say to boards have a discussion 
have a read of that and have a discussion for you what would be a conflict of interest because some people don't see they're blindsided there's no conflict here but when you have this these are some examples of conflicts that can arise could something what would be the equivalent for us how do we manage that because um, I've been talking to people and for me looking outside you, there is a major conflict and they just don't see it sometimes yeah and I, you know where I, I've seen it a good bit and, and the team have seen it a good bit would be in relation to not just your, your contracts so not just the services that you purchase but also employment um, and you know this idea that well you're starting up so therefore the people who are involved as volunteers maybe are the perfect people to then be working and, and you know um, well I suppose working becoming a staff member of the charity and that could well be the case they could well be the the right people but it's absolutely essential that you have a full recruitment process to make sure that from the charity's perspective as charity trustees you are making sure you get the best person for the job because you're going to be spending charity uh, funds on on employing that person and um, so that can sometimes come up and I think that catches people by surprise they, they don't understand why if they're involved in setting something up why they can't run it as they wish and the issue there is that a charity is not yours you know as trustees you are you're given this charity to run in trust and it'll be handed on at some point to others you know there's no proprietary you don't you don't own any aspect of it's it. not a private company exactly yeah, and i think that's something people need to get that ahead particularly people that have been involved in the establishment of a particular charity that they can sometimes feel personal ownership yeah and that's something i, I we always say you have to be very very careful both as the individual concerned but also as as trustees on a, on a board that you're very alive to that and, the, and, and you know you have to be sensitive to these things as well but if it's not acknowledged and if it's not addressed it can lead to issues that both you and i have seen Dermot, which is that you'd have a very strong personality who in effect is making all of the decisions for the board and that person may not even be a, a trustee and um, I think this comes down to, you know, one of the big issues that we see as well when we look at things like governance. And it is this idea that as a charity, you know, as charity trustees, you have specific duties and they're your your duties. And too often we have people saying to us, well, you know what, I didn't know that. But the question is, well, actually, did you ask? Because you are required to ask for things. Now, if you ask for certain information and you don't get it, then you have an issue. But I always say to trustees of a board as well, there is nobody in a charity that can prevent you from getting information about the charity. That's It can't happen. So if you meet that kind of resistance, it's absolutely essential that you address it. And similarly, the idea, well, trustee A was the one who did all of that. They're the ones who submitted our accounts or they're the ones who filled out our, our annual report. There is collective responsibility of the board. And so saying that somebody else did everything is is a not going to make things any better for the individual trustees concerned but also it just raises even more concerns about governance if people don't understand that kind of collective responsibility piece you recently published your annual report for 2022 and it's a great read for anybody who's interested in, in charities in ireland and a number of things just, that struck me but the first thing that really struck me was the drop in the compliance rate of complying with the annual report you know with 10 months after year uh, your financial year end you need to comply are there reasons or have you probed a little bit of why that there has been a fall off? Because it was quite high and it seems to have fallen back a bit. Yeah, it's a it's a massive concern for us, as you can appreciate, because we were seeing over the years that it was rising. You know, the level of compliance was rising. What we had also seen is, you know, through engaging with the sector itself, Indicon did a survey on this um, a number of years ago where they asked charity trustees about how difficult it was to fill out the annual report. And charity trustees were saying it's not difficult. It's a very straightforward form. It's online. We get our accounts, we fill in the details and we submit it. And similarly, when we did our 
more recent piece of research, we commissioned Amoric to do it for us and we surveyed charities and we published that report earlier this year. And you'll see that there was only 3% of the respondents to that rated ease of completion as being poor. So again, that indicates to us that there's no issue with people actually being able to fill out the form. So we're approaching it in two ways, Jeremy. The first thing is that out of fairness to the charities, the 60% of charities that are filing on time, and that's the key. It's on time. It's not, I filed it that year, but I was three months late. It's on time. And that's really, really important. That's the obligation. And it's when you don't file your annual report within 10 months of your year end that it becomes a criminal offence. And it is an offence for the trustees as well, for each of the trustees involved if this isn't done. So what we want to make sure is we don't want to be out prosecuting, you know, everybody for this. What we want to see is greater compliance. But unfortunately, we've got to a point now where we have a targeted compliance and enforcement programme that's going to be directed at certain charities that we've identified. There's just under 2,000 really of them that we've identified that we are engaging with directly at the moment. And what we're looking at in those situations is if they are not going to comply, they will either be removed or they will be prosecuted, or potentially both. So that is something that could be, particularly removal from the register. I mean, that could be catastrophic for for an organisation. But if you've given people every opportunity and you've explained the consequences, and that's a really big thing for us, we have to engage with people and make sure they understand the process and understand what is going to happen if they do not comply. So that process is underway at the moment, but you've hit on a really important aspect there in your question, which is, well, what is driving this? And we really want to find out. This is not one of these situations where we're engaging with charities you know to take a box we genuinely want to find out what can we do as the charities regulator to ensure that you comply with this what we would consider to be a very basic legal obligation but it's a critical obligation because it actually provides accountability and also transparency for the public in terms of a charity's finances so it's, it's absolutely essential because for some of the listeners that may not realize that this is actually published this information is published on the register under the charity's entry a big thing for us is we've been doing uh, we did a survey there recently we asked particular charities that were in breach we sent them out an anonymous survey to fill out well what were the issues you know why didn't you file this or why aren't you filing this on time and that's been really really interesting because um, I'll give you just a few quick indications now this is a small it's a small sample group you know it's around just over 100 responded we got it around a 10% response rate so it is just a, a snapshot what we call a pulse survey really but 66 of the respondents so two-thirds were companies worryingly some of the trustees that were responding you know couldn't tell us what form their charity was so it means they didn't know whether the charity was a company an association a charitable trust so you know dear that's obviously very critical that all charities and trustees would know what they are because there's certain implications like personal liability associated with an association that doesn't apply you've limited liability where it's a company limited by guarantee also 65 percent of those people who responded had been trustees for over five years now remember these are all people who are not complying with this obligation 94% of them said that they understood and knew there was an obligation to file an annual report. But worryingly, only just over 60% of them said that the annual reports that they had filed were approved by their board of trustees. Now, annual reports should always be approved by the board of trustees. Obviously, somebody else can prepare it, but it should be approved because it's something that goes up publicly on a register and has to be correct. That was quite worrying. Um, The top five reasons given for filing late were insufficient personnel to file on time, 
an accountant or an auditor not returning the information to the charity on time, personal reasons such as ill health, so that's assuming that there was one person that had responsibility to file, full year accounts not approved by the board of trustees on time. We did have an option saying full year accounts not ready on time, but that wasn't actually selected by anybody, and which is good. And then also the charity was not ready to make its declaration regarding the charity's governance code. So what that said to us, to be honest with you, particularly in terms of the comments, some of the comments that were given, is that the biggest issue is it's just not seen as a priority. You know, in a number of cases, actually, these are companies who've made their filings to the company's registration office, but who say, oh, you know, we'll do it when we've time. And then we had another, you know, another entity that was saying, oh, we get this funding and we spend, we have to spend all our resources on making sure we do our reports for our largest funder. And, and basically we don't have time to respond to this. And I think what they need to remember is that they risk being removed from the register of charities. And if they are removed from the register of charities, it will not be a simple matter of simply saying, oh, sorry, terribly sorry, here's our report, can you stick us back on? The registration process is a rigorous process and there are lots of people before them in the queue. So I think the implications really of this aren't being understood. And that indicates to me as well that there is, um, we had some comments coming back like, oh, it would be really helpful if you had a step-by-step guide how to fill out the annual report. We do. It's on our website. We have a video. We have really good materials there I for that. I smile at that. Yeah, that's the usual one. You know, have you looked to see what's available and they haven't. Yeah, yeah. So I think we've got some really good insight there. Because I, I have to be honest, personally, I was concerned, gosh, maybe it's to do with the charity's governance code. And maybe, and that certainly came up as one of the reasons, but not the biggest reason. And what I would say to people is, you know, don't let the charity's governance code hold you back. Your legal obligation is in relation to that annual report. Your declaration is something that if you're working on and if you're working to complete compliance and if you need to check things you can always come back and change your declaration so you can also say look we're in partial compliance at the moment because you know there's a couple of things you have to do and come back and that can be changed whereas your annual report you get one shot to get it in on time within 10 months and, and that's it I, I do think it's, it's it's probably making people more aware of the seriousness of not filing on time i think there might have been that casualness or we don't doesn't matter if we don't get and it in that is exactly why dear that compliance and enforcement piece is so important it's just not fair to the charities that are out nope. there you know the 60 percent who file on time and others who don't so that is something i think when people see charities being removed from the register because they fail to file their annual reports on time and um, that hopefully that will be a way you know i was hoping that people understood that but unfortunately i think for some people it's only when they see the actual practical consequences of it that they will be encouraged to comply also there was in the annual report, there was an increase in the number of concerns that have been raised with the regulator. Talk me through the, what's the process when you do get a concern. What does that trigger? Well, what happened is that in 2022, we got over 640 concerns. And these would be concerns that people would have submitted in relation to not just charities, but in relation to other organisations maybe that are holding themselves out as charities or who, you know, a person who's making the, who's raising the concern with us. And sorry, I should say concern is a complaint about a charity. We call them concerns. When they raise those with us, it might be that they think an entity is a charity and they should be registered. Whereas in some cases we will engage with the entity concerned or the group and we'll actually realise, well, no, they're not. They're not advancing a charitable purpose maybe they're doing something in the sporting area or maybe they're engaged in you know maybe political activities and and, you know in that case they wouldn't be registered as a charity but in other cases we do have organizations such as clothing collections where it's not possible to get in touch with the groups they're holding themselves out to be charities when they're not registered charities and they would form part of that 640 or so concerns that we received so we will engage with charities if we receive
receive a concern about a charity, we will, first of all, we look at the nature of the concern. We'll have information available to us from the charity having filed with us. And then we will look at what we have, what's available to us on maybe a charity's website, uh, see what other information is there. And then we'll engage with the charity and we'll, we'll try to see, is there an issue here? And it's really about, you know, establishing whether in fact there's an issue at all. And if there is an issue, what is the extent of that issue? Are there other issues that maybe the person who raised the concern weren't aware of, but we can then see are very obvious when we engage with the charity? And at all times, our overall approach is, a regulatory approach, is to bring charities into compliance. So if you are contacted by the charity's regulator about a concern, my advice is always just engage because, you know, it could be resolved very quickly. It might be something that was a major issue for you previously, but as a charity, you've resolved it and you're able to show us that you've already resolved it satisfactorily, in which case the concern will be closed. And at that point, what we do when we close concerns is we will let the the person who who raised the concern with us, assuming they aren't anonymous, and we will let them know the general, you know, the outcome of the the concerns process in, in very general terms. We won't go into a huge amount of detail on that because in fact we may have engaged in a lot of other elements with the charity concerned and we're satisfied that that's been that those issues have been resolved so really it's about enabling the charity to address any issues and then to get on doing what it's doing in a very very minute number of cases we will engage with the charity and we won't be assured by that engagement with them and we will have even more potentially more concerns and where that happens we will then have to consider things like well do we need to impose intermediate sanctions so that would be whereby you the charity will agree with you that you can publish the nature of the non-compliance um, and they agree to rectify it in some way and they're given a period of time and they could be taken off the register temporarily in, in that case or it might be the appointment of inspectors but they would be in a very very small number of cases now what I would say again is I'd refer people to our compliance reports to actually see the other types of work that we do in certain cases if a concern was serious but we needed to really get a bit more information on it as a charity you might receive what's known as a direction to provide information so that would be under section 53 of our act again it's really, really important that charities respond to those directions and respond to them on time. And similarly, if you're a charity and inspectors are appointed, again, that engagement piece is, is really critical. So if you're asked to provide information or to, if there are interviews, maybe because people want to flesh, the inspectors want to flesh something out um, with you, um, it's really important that people attend because not attending or not giving the information is a, is a criminal offence in itself. And that's something that obviously we will pursue and we have pursued. And um, where that's occurred. Excellent. This has been this has been fascinating, and um, we could be talking about this for a long time. But there's a question I ask all my guests uh, is a sort of like a final one. But it's the magic wand question in terms of if you had top three wishes, what for you would you'd like to see the, the sector evolve in the, over the next five years' time? Say, if I had a magic wand, definitely. You know, the first one would be that there would be greater public trust and confidence in the charity sector, but also in regulation as well. You know, we have a, a joint role in that. The regulator can't achieve it on its own and the sector, I don't think, can achieve it on its own either. And the things that would be key in that would be more transparency and accountability around the activities and finances of registered charities. So, you know, that we'd have our legislation in place that would assist with that. And also that there's 100% compliance with annual reporting requirements. Um, that would be fantastic because 
because as I said it is we've some way to go for that but it's such a straightforward form and it's so critical to the sector I think if we had 100% that would be amazing the second area if I had a magic wand it would be that we achieved our strategic goals as a regulator in terms of ensuring that we are providing proportionate and risk-based regulations so that the resources that we have we target them at the areas that are biggest risk for the sector and that's certainly what we endeavour to do at the moment but also that we would have all of the guidance if I could wave a magic wand all of the guidance and materials that charities actually need to carry out their work and to make sure that you know their charities are, are run well we've huge amount of guidance but we still are always looking for charities to come back and, and let us know what else they need and, and we also we pick up on things as well with our discussions the third and final thing if I had a magic wand would be that across the charity sector good governance is you know becomes less about doing and more about being and what what I mean about that is that that those involved in charities understand that the charities you know charities have to be run well so it's just a given they have to be run well and that they strive to you know ensure that this is the case as opposed to the charities governance code being this you know reduced to some tick box exercise that everybody feels has to be done once a year you know, something has to be done. Um, so as I said, it's, you know, that that good governance would be, uh, that they would be that as opposed to thinking that it's something they have to they have to do. Absolutely. Great, great wishes there. And I do think the level and depth of conversations we in Carmichael have at our board, because we're looking at stuff that we wouldn't necessarily have looked in the past, but is part of that compliance and things like uh, risk and succession planning, board recruitment, all of those are sort of important things that, you know, you provide a framework because you're complying with the government's code for those discussions to happen happen in a structured way so Helen it's been fantastic thank you so much for your time thanks Dermot thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance podcast we hope you enjoyed it if you did it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts so until the next time Slán Gofol